in verse 19, Job cries out, Surely even now my witness is in heaven. My evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. As I mentioned a couple Sunday nights ago, I had a friend who refused to read the book of Job because he was unemployed. He was a young Christian and he thought it was the book of Job. And that if he read it, surely he would be convicted or condemned because he didn't have one. He said, Skip, I've never read this book because, well, I've just had a real tough time keeping a job. I said, David, this is called the book of Job, not the book of Job. Job is a man's name. And the book of Job is the story of a man. It is not the story of an issue. This is not a treatise on human suffering. It's a treatise on a man who is suffering. And there's a big difference. You know, a lot of times when we confront someone who is suffering, someone we love, or if we're suffering, we grapple with all of these theological questions. Why, God, is this person suffering? I don't understand why there's misery and agony in the world. When at that point, that's not the issue. The issue is there is a person that you know who is suffering. That's the issue. The person is the issue. Not the theological fact of suffering. And so this is the story of a man in relationship to God, in relationship to Satan, in relationship to his wife, in relationship to his three friends, all in the context of one who is suffering greatly. I'm going to give you a little bit of background so we can jump in. Job, it says, was in chapter one known as the greatest man in the East. He had a reputation for being a man of wisdom. He was very wealthy. And there was a conversation between Job and Satan and God or God and Satan. God removed the hedge, as it were, from Job's life and allowed Satan to hassle him a little bit. In one fell swoop, Job lost his wealth. Job lost his health. Job lost his children. Job was reduced to sitting on an ash heap. Once wealthy, once prosperous, once rejoicing in his children, he now is experiencing pain and affliction from human suffering, from a disease. He's lost his kids. He's lost everything. As he's sitting there on this ash heap, his wife gives him a beautiful word of encouragement. She says, honey, curse God and die. Why do you put up with this? Why don't you just get it over with? I hate to see you suffering like this. Job said, you're a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from the Lord and not evil? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. My life belongs to him. He can do whatever he wants with it. And it says that Job did not sin or curse God with his lips. Now, three friends came to see him. They're named in Job. We're not going to go through their names and their background. But three friends come and they sit for seven days. They watch his agony. They don't say a word. They, in fact, cry with him. They rip their clothes. They're in deep agony. But then Job starts talking and 
As someone who is involved in deep suffering often does, he spills out his emotions. And then all of a sudden, his friends, once hearing Job, they decide to philosophize on the fact that it is because Job is a sinner that he is suffering. And they conclude, Job, there must be secret sin in your life because this couldn't happen to a righteous man. If one were righteous, he would not be sick. He would not be deprived of his prosperity. Everything would be fine, but something must be wrong with you, Job. They missed the whole point that Job was innocent. He hadn't done anything. God, in fact, said Job is the most innocent man who ever lived at that point. God holds him up as a beacon of godliness. It wasn't because sin. But these three men were seeking to offer Job a cut and dry theology. They wanted to reduce the ways of God to formulas and laws. And they missed the point that Job was innocent. They offered him platitudes. Now, in chapter 16, we come to a highly packed emotional point. Job feels hedged in. These three friends come and they accuse him. And uh, Job feels like a cat in a corner. He He has to defend himself and claw back. And they're all pointing their fingers at Job, saying, Job, you're a rotten, filthy, dirty sinner. God bless you. And so Job retorts in verse 1. Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? In other words, you're a bunch of windbags, all of you. You're not comforting me one bit. You're not offering me any solace. I could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth. And the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. I don't know, but I kind of figure that Job wanted to deck these three men. At least I would want to if they would keep those kind of insults constantly upon me. And Job feels trapped and misunderstood. I had, when I first moved to Albuquerque, a radio show on a station here, and it was a call-in show. It was a live question and answer. And we were talking about human suffering. And we brought up the issue of Job. In fact, we brought up this very issue that we're dealing with today. And how that it's not because there's sin in your life or that you have a lack of faith. Like these three counselors said that a person isn't healed. And I got a phone call from a young man who said, thank you so much for telling exactly what you told us this morning on your radio program. He says, I'm suffering. And he'd explained his disease. He'd been in bed for a few years. He said, the reason I thank you is that I feel so dejected. My own parents are telling me, son, there's sin in your life. And if you only had enough faith, you'd get up out of your bed and you'd walk. He said, my own parents have forsaken me. They're heaping insults upon me. I feel so lonely. That's how Job felt. Now, Job, in this chapter, is experiencing a roller coaster of emotions. As a person often does when he's in suffering. When a person is suffering physically or emotionally or spiritually, a person's emotions are like a roller coaster. They experience different emotions at different times in coping with the problem. Job at one point trusts God. He affirms his confidence in God. The next breath, he's wondering, God, where are you? 
He's doubting. He's angry. He's challenging God, challenging his friends. Then he lapses back into despair. And then he flip-flops again and he's confident in God. Often when a person is suffering, they experience this type of emotion. Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, in one of her books, Death and Dying, describes the coping process that a person goes through emotionally when confronted with catastrophe. They find out they have cancer or they find out that their wife or husband has died. There's, first of all, denial, isolation. Then there's anger. There's bargaining. There's depression. And finally, through those steps, a person begins to cope with the problem. In each of the speeches that Job gives, there wells up within him a deep question or a challenge or a cry, a pleading with God in the midst of his suffering. In all of the speeches, he cries out and he asks a question or he forms a deep conviction. And although he's flip-flopping back and forth in his suffering, he lands upon an issue He expresses his confidence in God and he cries out. And sometimes as I read the book of Job, I feel like a hopeless bystander. As I read it, I think, if only I could tell Job about Jesus. It'd be so different. His cries would be answered. Look with me at verse 15. Job sort of sums up his condition. He says, I have sown sackcloth over my skin and laid my head in the dust. My face is flushed from weeping. And on my eyelids is the shadow of death. Although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. O earth, do not cover my blood and let my cry have no resting place. Surely even now my witness is in heaven. My evidence is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. In Job's cry, Job is crying out for a representative. First of all, he says in verse 19, Surely even now my witness is in heaven. My witness. The word witness would be better translated, watcher. My watcher is in heaven. It speaks of a person who watches the events of a person's life, and because he can watch and see all things, he knows all that's going on. He has all the facts. He's been watching play by play, blow by blow, all of the incidences. So he has full and complete knowledge of what's going on. He has all the facts. The Bible says in Hebrews, all things are naked and open before him, the one with whom we have to deal with. All things. Job is crying out for a watcher, someone who knows all the facts. This is why. His friends came, ganged up on him, and are giving him all of these observations on suffering. Now, his friends were honest and probably well-meaning, but they missed the whole point. And they hurt Job terribly. They hurt him because they misjudged him. They misjudged him because they misunderstood him. They misunderstood him because they didn't have all the facts. They didn't know what was going on behind the scenes with God and Satan and the conversation that is in chapter 1 and 2. 
They did not know all the facts about Job's personal integrity and what he was thinking and feeling in his own heart before the Lord. And yet his friends came and made a value judgment based on limited knowledge. And so he says, my witness or my watcher is in heaven. The one who understands all of the facts because he's been watching and he has full and complete knowledge. You know, one of the worst feelings is to feel misunderstood. It's to make a decision or to venture out on an activity and watch people accuse you. They don't have full information, but they make a judgment. They put a two facts together out of ten and they accuse you. They make a judgment. And no matter what you do, no matter how you try to redeem yourself and explain yourself, it just gets worse. You feel defenseless. Job felt defenseless. My friends don't understand me. A friend gave me a story that is a humorous story about someone who misunderstood someone because they were from two different cultures. There was a woman who was from England and she was going to go to Switzerland and go to school. She visited the school and the schoolmaster was showing her several different rooms that she could move into when she got there. She looked at him and she laughed. And when she came back to England, she remembered that as the schoolmaster showed her all of the different rooms, that she did not see a restroom, which, by the way, an English person calls a WC, which is a water closet. If you go to England, it doesn't say restroom, it says WC. So she wrote back and said, thank you for showing me the rooms, but I didn't see where the WC was located. And he didn't know English very well. And he couldn't figure out what the words WC meant. So he took it to the parish priest and said, I can't figure this out. What does she mean, WC? And he tried to figure it out. And the only thing that he could come up with was the Wayside Chapel, which was located in the area. Now, she's wondering where the restroom is, the WC. They think it's the Wayside Chapel. And so they write a letter back to this lady who's in England, describing what she can expect when she comes. My dear madam... I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house. In the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It is capable of holding 229 people. And it's open on Sundays and Thursdays only. As there are a great number of people expected during the summer months, I suggest that you come early. Although usually there is plenty of standing room. This is an unfortunate situation, especially if you are in the habit of attending regularly. It may be of some interest to know that my daughter was married in the WC. And it was there that she met her husband. You will be glad to hear that a good number of people bring their lunch and make a day of it. While those who can afford to go by car arrive on time. I would especially recommend your ladyship to go on Thursdays when there is a piano accompaniment. The letter goes on. It gets even more humorous. But you can imagine what this lady thought. Oh, my goodness. I'm never going to go to school in Switzerland. Unfortunately, misunderstanding in our lives is not that humorous or innocent. All of us have had the experience of standing alone. You feel very lonely when you're misunderstood. 
I have made decisions in this church that people didn't understand because they didn't know the facts. Or perhaps you've made decisions or you've called people and you've told them certain things. But because a person will get a wind of a fact or a gossip, they'll blow it out of proportion. And no matter what you do, you just feel totally misunderstood. I'll tell you what Job is doing in this verse. He is saying, I appeal to heaven. I appeal to someone who knows more than these three friends of mine. I feel so misunderstood, so boxed in by them. They don't know what's going on. I appeal to someone who knows everything. My witness or my watcher. I like that. You know, it says in the New Testament, it says even if our hearts condemn us and we feel guilty for something, that God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. God knows all things. Lord, you know everything. You see my three friends. You see the accusations they're making. Lord, they don't understand. Next, he says in verse 19, And my evidence is on high. You that have the NIV, it says advocate. Is that correct? It really means someone who will stand up and vouch for me. That's what it means. He's not speaking about evidence as immaterial evidence. He's speaking of a person, my watcher, my advocate, or the one who will stand up and plead my case. Job is crying out for someone to represent him. He is saying, in effect, oh, if there was only someone in heaven who could stand up before the judge and could present my case and the judge, that is God, would listen to him, present the evidence, stick up for me. I need someone to stick up for me at this point. That's what he means when he says my evidence or my advocate is on high. What do you do when you're misunderstood? Maybe you hold it in and just get bitter and maybe gossip about the person who's misunderstanding you. What did Job do when he was misunderstood? He took it to God, didn't he? But he verbalized his trust in God. That's important. You see, I think when we're misunderstood, when we feel misjudged and cheated by people who are pointing fingers of accusations at us, a lot of times we think, oh, I know the Lord's here and I know it's okay and I know that he'll do something. But we don't verbalize it. I think we need to. I think we need, as Job, to say, Lord, you stand up for me. You stick up for me because you know all the facts. And Lord, I value your opinion more than all these other people's opinions. And because I value your opinion the most, you stick up for me, Lord, and I just want to make sure that I'm pleasing to you. I'm not going to care about pleasing everybody else at this point. I want to make sure I'm pleasing to you and verbalize your trust in the Lord. I think of David. David was so used by God in delivering Israel from her enemies that at one point they wrote a song about David. It became on the top 40 list, everybody was singing it. Every time David would go to battle with the Philistines and come back, they'd play this tune. It went like this. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. It was a catchy tune. Everybody sang it. Everybody loved David. Everybody loved the song, except Saul. Saul didn't like it because it put him down. Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Saul became intensely jealous at David. 
He thought, this kid is trying to get my job. And David felt very misunderstood and defenseless because now there's a king who's trying to kill him. No matter how he tried to explain his love to the king, the king didn't understand. And David was being followed all over the kingdom. So what did David do? Well, he wrote a song. He wrote Psalm 140. And in Psalm 140, David pleads to God. He said, God, stand up for me. You hear the cries of the enemy. It's through no fault of my own that I've been brought into this kind of entrapment. But now, Lord, you stand up. You become my shield. You become my defense. In fact, part of the prayer is an imprecation. He says, Lord, rain fiery coals down upon them. In other words, you take care of them. And if there needs to be judgment, I'll leave that up to you. When I was growing up, I had three older brothers. There was four boys in our family, and I was the youngest. I had three older brothers. That left me at a tremendous advantage. The advantage was is that when somebody wanted to pick a fight with me, I'd just go home and tell my brother. If they were at school pushing me around, I'd just go get my brother who was six foot eight. I'd say, Bob, this guy's hassling me, sick him. David verbalizes his trust in God and he says, God, you deal with them. Stick up for me. I need somebody to stick up for me. Now, caution, folks. Caution. A lot of times people will point a finger of accusation and you feel misunderstood. And a lot of Christians will tell you things, but stop to consider if you are right or wrong. You see, a lot of Christians will tell you different things. They may be right. And if you are in the wrong, if you are harboring sin in your life, and they're telling you, you know what? You're living in sin. If you are living in sin, don't say, oh, Lord, stick up for me. They're judging me. You might have the necessity to be judged and discerned at that point. For the Bible teaches that. So you make sure that you can say like Job in verse 17, although no violence is in my hands and my prayer is pure. This is what's going on. Be sure that you're in the same position that Job is. And then God can stand up for you. Next, it says in verse 20, and some of you are going to be confused. It says, my friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God. And then a plea. In verse 21. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleads for his neighbor. If you have the New International Version, You're confused because it says this. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. I'm not going to talk about the differences between the texts. I'm just going to say that if you boil the meaning down of this verse, no matter what version you have, it says the same thing. Job is comparing his friends on earth with The heavenly friend. He's crying out for an intercessor. Someone who can be his friend. Someone who can plead to God as a man would plead for a friend. Job feels distant from God and he's asking that someone might come on his behalf and bring him close to God. He's not only crying and yearning for someone to defend his case, for someone who knows all the facts, as we already talked about, but someone who would act in behalf of Job as a buddy, as a friend. 
Turn back a couple chapters to chapter 9. Look at verse 33. Or verse 32, he says, For he is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, and that we should go to court together. Nor is there any mediator between us who may lay his hand on us both. That's what he's crying for. Someone who would lay his hand on God and lay his hand on Job and bring them together. In other words, Job is praying for someone who would close the gap. Someone who would close the gap. Job feels estranged from God, distant from God. Now, people feel that way in suffering, don't they? When you're suffering, you feel misunderstood by people. You've been praying, but you haven't had answers. You feel like God has left and taken a Caribbean cruise. And you feel like, I wish I could get close to God. Job is praying for someone who will close the gap and bring Job close to the Lord again. Let me tell you something about friends and people. God uses people. God uses us to minister to each other. But people can be very disappointing, folks. I know God uses people. God uses us to minister to one another. But if you place your trust in human beings, they will disappoint you. Even your nearest and dearest friends can misunderstand you. And you can feel all alone in the midst of good friends. And that's how Job felt. He has his comforters around him. Miserable comforters are you all. He had his wife who said, curse God and die. He feels dejected. He wants someone who can act as a friend and get God and get Job and bring them close together. I believe that Job is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is saying things much deeper than even he realized. He's crying out for Jesus Christ. That's what I believe he's doing. I don't believe he understands the full implications of what he's crying for. But do you remember a story in the New Testament? Jesus had died, he's risen from the dead, and he's going to Jerusalem. And he meets two folks, two guys, on the road to Emmaus, between Emmaus and Jerusalem. And he starts walking with them. He's incognito, they don't recognize him. And they're walking along and he says, uh, Hey, you guys look troubled, what's bothering you? And they said, You must be a stranger, don't you know what's happened? All the things that have happened? He goes, well, What things? Oh, about this guy named Jesus who we trusted. We thought he was the Messiah, but he's dead now. And it says that Jesus began at Moses. And beginning at Moses and through all of the prophets in the Old Testament, he began to explain to them out of the Old Testament all of the things concerning himself. And they were blown away. And after Jesus left, they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us? As he opened the scriptures to us. I wish that Bible study would have been recorded. I can hear them. Did you hear how he handled Leviticus? Do you remember what he said about Psalm 22? I've never seen that before. And I bet he landed on Job. Oh, did you hear what he said about Job crying out? And how he fulfilled that? Jesus is the central theme of the Bible, Old and New Testament. If you want your Bible to come alive to you, learn to see Jesus interwoven as the main theme throughout all of the Scriptures. Your Bible will come alive. It will be brand new. 
because he's the theme, he's the center. All of it revolves around him. And Jesus is the ultimate answer to Job's cry. Job is crying for a friend, for an intercessor, for someone to stand up and defend his cause. Jesus answered all of those things. I want you to turn with me. We're going to turn to a few scriptures briefly to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter two. I'm going to back up and begin in verse eight of chapter one. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, and I think all of us would raise our hand on that one, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Advocate means a lawyer. One who will stand and take my case before God. He will plead my cause. He goes on and he says, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the whole world. Now back up and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter seven. Go back a few books to Hebrews, chapter seven. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he will, or he with an oath, by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. If by so much more Jesus has become a surety of better covenant, and there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing, But he, that is Jesus, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Now, here's the verse. Therefore, he is able also to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He ever lives to make intercession for them, which means he ever lives to make your appeal before God or to plead your case Before the Lord. Let me tell you what he's talking about. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to come into the tabernacle and represent people before God. That was their representative. Now, the priesthood is done away with, and all of those things foreshadowed Jesus Christ, who would walk into the presence of God and sit at the right hand of the throne of God and become our intercessor, the one who stands up for you. You have a rep in heaven. One who stands up for you. One who says, I bought that person. He belongs to me. And all of your sins are forgiven. Why? Why do we need an intercessor? Why do we need an advocate? For this reason. We are in exactly the same predicament as Job. Job has three accusers pointing the finger at him, saying, you're a jerk, you're a sinner, you're vile, when he hadn't done anything wrong. Now, we have what is called the accuser of the brethren. The Bible says that the devil accuses you and me before God day and night. 
And most of the time, he's probably correct in his accusations. So because we have somebody accusing, we need someone to stand up for us, don't we? What if you went into a courtroom and the prosecuting attorney was the devil and you were on trial and you didn't have a lawyer? You said, I don't need a lawyer. Ah, no problem. And you walk in and Satan, with his snide smile, reads off a list that's about 50,000 miles long. And as he reads them off, you think, I did that. (laughs) Yeah, I did that one too. Oh, he's right on all of them. Would you feel confident that the judge would say, ah, don't worry about it? You'd be shaken in your boots. And after the list is completely read off, the judge says, you know what, this guy doesn't have an attorney. Let's get a court-appointed attorney for him. Go get somebody. In walks Jesus, the judge's son. And he approaches the bench after Satan has read off the list, and he says, Dad, you've heard this list. You've heard all of the accusations by this prosecuting attorney against Skip. (laughs) They're all true. He wants to plead completely guilty to them, but I paid the price. I took his place. I'm his, not only his lawyer, but I'm his savior. And I took his place and I cleansed him of all of his sins and I placed that whole list on my body and I died and I rose from the dead. That's the evidence that I have. My blood right here. God says, dismissed. He's acquitted. Get him out of here. And the case is thrown out of court. That's what I have in heaven. That's why I need an advocate, because I have an accuser, and so do you. Job's cry was answered in Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me to John 15. Verse 13, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He says, I'm not calling you servants. I'm calling you friends. Jesus is inviting them to enjoy a new status before the Lord, not one of estrangement, but one of friendship. He says, look, you guys can be my friends and I'll be the advocate and I'll introduce you to the Father and I'll close the gap that exists between you and God, and you can be a friend. To me, it's amazing that God wants my friendship. But you know, a lot of people are content with having a distant relationship with God. A lot of people have a relationship with God like they'd have with a high school vice principal. I respected my high school vice principal, but he was not my friend. And a lot of people talk about The good Lord. Well, that's just what the good Lord wants. And, well, that's what the Almighty has declared. And they always talk about God, their relationship to God, as one of distance. The Almighty, the good Lord. And He is Almighty and He is good. But He's Jesus. 
God made flesh who brings you to God. He's intimate. He wants a personal relationship. He wants something close and intimate. He wants to stand up for you, but he wants to stand up for you as a friend. So Jesus says, I don't call you just servants. I call you friends. Back to Job, and we close with the last verse, which says, For when a few years are finished, I shall go the way of no return. Now that sums it up quite nicely. I need someone who knows all the facts. Someone who will stand up and represent me before God. A friend who will close the gap. I need to get close to God. Why? Because in a few years, I'm going to go the way of no return. You and I have an appointment with death. And that's one appointment, if the Lord doesn't tarry, that you will keep. Guaranteed. Even if you forget about that appointment, and you don't mark it down in your daytime, or you're going to keep it. Everyone will keep the appointment with death. It is appointed for man once to die, and after this, the judgment. Notice how Job describes his life. Just a few years. A few years, I'm going the way of no return. You know, a lot of people live their lives as if they're indestructible. Oh, I can just do anything. The Bible says our life is a mist. It's a vapor. It appears and then, where to go? I don't know. It's not important. There's new people around. That's what your life is like. It's so quick. Just a few short years. You know, if you turn on the television set recently, you are used to hearing the figure billions. Our budget our deficit in the billions of dollars. That doesn't phase us. Translate billions into time. Think about this. A billion seconds ago, we were still fighting World War II. Uh, a billion minutes ago, Jesus was still walking on the earth. Have you ever stopped to calculate how many years you have left? Now, I know that's... Totally impossible, because you might die in a week. But let's say you're 35 years old, and that's probably the mean age of this fellowship. If you're 35 years old and you live to be 70, you've got 12,000 days left. If you live to be 70, that's how many days you have left, 12,000 days. Job says it's just a few years. And then I go the way of no return. You know, I find it real interesting that death has become a real big subject in our universities. It's called thanatology. There's courses offered in many colleges and universities speaking about death and dying and how to prepare people for death, but they never include God in that preparation. They talk about what you can do to the relatives and practical issues, but no thought of God is brought into preparation for death. And yet it's on the minds of people. A recent survey was taken and they found that kids, young people, that death was the number one subject, the most thought about subject in their minds except for sex. That's how much people were thinking about death. And it's appointed for man once to die and after this the judgment. We are dealing in time, a time when we can make decisions, but soon we pass into eternity. Sir William Russell, when he was on his way to be hung, he was an English patriot. He took a watch out of his pocket and he handed it over to the doctor who was taking care of him. He gave it to him and he says, I'm in, I'm in no need of it any longer. I don't need my watch. Now I'm dealing with eternity. I'm dealing with eternity. Job says, I'm going the way of no return. Thus, I need an intercessor. I need a friend. I need someone who knows all the facts and understands me. 
And that is answered in Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with this saying by J.I. Packer that I found in his book. Listen, listen carefully. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. The thought that he sees all of the twisted things about me that my fellow men do not see, and he sees more corruption in me than I, than I see myself, which isn't all conscious enough. There is, however, great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die in order to realize this purpose. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray with all of our hearts, knowing that the cry of humanity is answered in Jesus Christ, who stands up for us, who is our friend, who brings us to the Father. Lord, you understand. You know the facts. We don't. And many people around us who are looking at our lives, those of whom we feel terribly hurt by and misjudged by, they don't understand completely, Lord, but you know our hearts. You understand. You see all. And you defend. What's most important, you are our friend. Lord, I am convinced that if a person knows how to die and is prepared to die, that he's prepared to live. And I pray that people will today be prepared to die knowing that their life is a breath. That they might have a friend and a witness on